I invite you to the Old Testament minor prophet writings of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1. We looked at this first chapter last week and I thought it would be wise just to reread it and think again of the historical background for the second chapter of this book as we look at Jonah's response to God's saving grace in his life. But we remember in Jonah chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God, perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from, and what is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on innocent blood. Lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. As we noted last week, Jonah rejoiced that God loved him. And Jonah rejoiced that God loved others. But when God commanded Jonah to serve as an instrument of God's mercy to the arrogant, brutal, and godless Ninevites, Jonah's rejoicing ceased. 
He wanted no part of that. Refusing to proclaim a message of repentance to the city, which assumed the possibility of repentance and forgiveness, Jonah fled in the opposite direction of God's call. In the first reading of this narrative, if you would go through for the first time, as we stop at verse 16, the sea is calm. And Jonah has gone down under the waters, and we would assume at this point has drowned. But instead, we witness a dramatic display of Yahweh's steadfastly loyal, covenant-keeping, mercy-driven love toward his disobedient child. An unprecedented turn of events takes place at verse 17, displaying the truth that nothing will ever separate God's people from God's steadfast love. Absolutely nothing. As the brief narrative of verse 17 reveals, the storm God hurled at Jonah's ship was not intended to destroy the rebellious prophet, but rather to restore him. Verse 17 reads, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, continuing to display sovereign control over nature. God appoints a great fish to do his bidding. God commissions the fish to swallow Jonah, who has just been pitched overboard into the turbulent waters of the Mediterranean Sea. And it's virtually impossible at this place not to stop and ask some questions about the nature of this fish and how it is that Jonah could have survived in this fish. Many declare the concept irrational and they dismiss it as legendary. Others go to great lengths to explain how such a situation could work if Jonah were swallowed by an oxygen-breathing mammal, a whale, And then there is almost invariably some reference to a sailor a long time back where that history records who was swallowed by a whale. The whale was harpooned and the sailor was saved, taken alive, a bit frightened, you can imagine, but alive. Well, all of this, we really don't know. There's nothing here in the text of Scripture that fills any of this in for us. All we can know is that nothing in our world corresponds more perfectly with reality than this book. And if the Bible says that Jonah was swallowed by a fish, there's a way it works. And we can put confidence in that. In fact, Jesus Christ believed in the authenticity of Jonah and in the authenticity of this account, as we will see later. We lack the information here to know how it works. But we do not lack the information to know what God was doing to work. Taking our cue from this silence, we should conclude that the important issue is really not Jonah's relationship to the fish. The important issue is the relationship of Jonah to his God. The fish, indeed, as Ferguson notes, is only a walk-on part in this gripping drama. The important issue is what is happening in Jonah's heart. As another commentator puts it, I was so obsessed with what was going on inside the whale that I missed seeing the drama inside of Jonah. And we cannot miss this. What is to grip us is not the man in the fish, but the grace of God operating toward a man despite his rebellion and sin. This is the wonder in the account. Three days and three nights, as I noted last week, is a Hebrew idiom. It doesn't define a 72-hour period of time as we would take it. But it was a phrase that was used fairly widely, and it 
intended to be used of one full day and some time, either a lot or a little on either side of that day. But there's also indication from ancient texts that this phrase, three days and three nights, was a phrase that was typically found of entering into the realm of the dead. Uh, A sort of figure of speech. In other words, Jonah was as good as dead. He was in the grave. He was done. He was gone. Three days and three nights there. Again, not precisely 72 hours as such, but rather an idea here that he has entered into the realm of the dead and has and is doing so for some period of time, touching three days, if we take it both ways. What we do know is that the ancient peoples connected Sheol, the realm of the dead, with the sea. If you think about it, swimming is really a reflection of wealth. It's a reflection of a high society and a capacity to learn to swim. You go into developing areas of the world, people don't swim. They're afraid of falling into the water. It's not an experience that they have. We take it for granted. But we have lessons, don't we, that we pay for. And we have experiences and opportunities, and obviously Minnesotans, many opportunities to get in the water where you need to swim. But for the ancient peoples, to fall over into the water was to fall right into the jaws of death. The sea was seen as Sheol. It was seen as this realm of the dead. It was the epitome of the extreme danger and finality of death. That is where Jonah falls. He falls into death, in a sense. And as we just take one brief sideline here, just to look at the overall structure of this uh, section of Scripture, chapter 1 and verse 17 really should go with chapter 2. In fact, in the Hebrew Bible, it does, which creates all kinds of trouble for those reading commentaries. You're constantly looking back at what verse you're on. But the Hebrew Bible puts it with chapter 2, and that's, I think, where it should go. What we have here is a narrative, a brief narrative, verse 17 of chapter 1. Then a lengthy poem or psalm where Jonah praises God for his deliverance. And then there is on the other bookend a brief narrative. You can see how, the, how it is structured here where Jonah is deposited on the land. So we noted here that he is swallowed by the whale and now that Jonah praises God as his deliverer. Beginning at verse 1 of chapter 2, he prayed to the Lord his God. And notice it is from the belly of the fish that he prays this prayer. Saying, now let me just read through it as we take it all in as a psalm and hear it and allow its message to pass over us. And then we'll go back and look at it in a little more detail. But he said, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs 
to Yahweh, to the Lord. A couple of general observations before we dive in a little further, no pun intended. But this psalm is saturated with words and phrases and allusions to the Hebrew Psalter. It is peppered with them. Almost every line, writes one commentator, has direct verbal parallels in the Psalter. We'll not take time to look through these uh, here today, but you can see the parallels. Sometimes specific phrases lifted out of the Psalms in Jonah's psalm and, and word of praise. As a prophet of Israel, Jonah would have been trained as a poet with abilities to compose psalms based on themes and vocabulary prevalent in the Psalter. And so throughout, from beginning to end, this is a man filled with the Word of God, and the Word of God spills from him in this time of trial. But somewhat unexpectedly, the emphasis of Jonah's prayer falls on praise rather than on petition. Jonah rejoices that God has delivered him. He does not specifically ask God to do so. That's interesting. This leads naturally to consideration of the placement of this prayer. Many have said it's in the wrong place. It should come after verse 10. In verse 10, he is delivered. And then there's this psalm of deliverance. Why place it here? Well, we've got to go with what the text of Scripture does with it. Verse 1 of chapter 2 in our text says that Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Problem with many is when we get in a heap of trouble, all we do is pepper God with petitions for deliverance. Get me out of this, get me out of this, get me out of this. And we would expect then that Jonah would write the same thing, that he would pray the same kind of prayer. But this is a prayer of utter confidence in the deliverance that God has already rendered. And it seems to indicate two things. First, we know Jonah has come to understand that the storm was hurled at him. We see that in chapter 1 very clearly. He understands that. But it seems that he has also come to understand in the deliverance of the fish that God isn't done with him. If God meant to kill me, I would be thrown into this sea and I would drown and that would be the end of it. But I have been swallowed. I'm breathing. I'm thinking. I'm safe here. I'm in the realm of the dead, but I'm not dead. And Jonah seems, wherever in this period of time, to have come to the idea that God has delivered him by means of this fish. He discerns and concludes that God has saved him from the realm of death in the midst of the realm of death. Think of it. In the saving plan of God. There's no problem, in my mind, to think that Jonah edited this prayer later that he put some polish on it and smoothed some things out and said things a little bit differently later. But we must say that this was composed essentially in the belly of the fish. Prayers of thanksgiving for the deliverance of God, which assume, as you've noted, places where he indeed did call out to God and certainly ask for deliverance. But we find the ultimate motivation. Let's walk through it now a little more carefully. We won't take much time, but just to work our way through, we find, first of all, in verse 2, the motivation for Jonah's prayer. And we have a parallel statement, the first half of the verse being paralleled the second half, essentially saying the same thing to repeat the idea. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. 
Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Here's his word of thanksgiving. Jonah is in distress. The Hebrew word indicates Jonah suffered anguished, emotional trauma. And in that state, he cries out to God. He describes his location as the belly of Sheol, which is a Hebrew word depicting that realm or habitation of the dead. So Jonah views himself as having entered the realm of death, yet as living to tell about it. And he's going to tell about it. God has delivered him. The, district, or the description of his distress is found in verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. This refers back to the mariners, of course, hurling Jonah overboard into the angry sea. And Jonah was devoured by the crashing waves and by the swell of waves. He goes down into it and is sinking. Then I said, verse 4, I am driven away from your sight. Now something happened right there. I am driven away from your sight. In that horrifying moment, Jonah felt that he had been abandoned by God. You stop and say, now wait a minute, Jonah. Isn't that exactly what you were kind of hoping for? Didn't you want to run away from the presence of God? Chapter 1 and verse 3. Wasn't that the agenda here? To get away from God? I think there's a tremendous lesson for us here when it comes to sin. This is how running from God works. You pursue what you want against the will of God only to find your soul echoing with emptiness. Never do we find fulfillment running away from God. Never do we find joy in sin. We find pleasure. We find excitement. We find a momentary reprieve from the watchful eye of God. But never do we find joy. Never do we find fulfillment. And Jonah seems to have come to his senses here to say, I now have what I want. God is not paying attention. Or so I thought. But it's empty. It is absolutely hopeless. I am driven away from the sight of the Lord. Yet, he says, verse 4, I shall again look upon your holy temple. Somewhere the confidence comes that he will be brought back into right relationship with God. Verse 5, he goes back to the ordeal. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Whether that's in the fish going down deep into the sea or whether he was sinking, holding his breath before the fish got him. Whatever the case, he knows that he's in the realm of death and he's never going to escape. He believes in his mind. But he was delivered. And we have then a section dealing with his praise for God's deliverance. Verse 6b, Yet you brought up my life from the pit, the pit or the grave. O Lord, my God, I was sinking down. The weeds wrapped around my head, going deep where no one can live. But God, you intervened. You rescued me. And some of the psalms that we read earlier this morning, and if we looked up some of the psalms that are parallels here, we'll find these images of sinking down into the depths of the sea. Not literal in the, in the mouth of many of the psalmists, but for Jonah it was. And he found there the great deliverance of God and rejoiced in it. 
Verse 7, when my life was fainting away, his life was ebbing away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. He neared the bitter end of the course that he had chosen for himself. But having hit bottom, Jonah repented and he turned to God as his Savior. He remembered the Lord. Again, it's not in the way we use the phrase, oh, I forgot about him. That's right, he might help me out here. It's, no, it's remembered in the sense of repentance. He turned in repentance to the Lord and his prayer ascended to God's heavenly temple. Why? That might, that might not strike us as unusual. That's extremely amazing. This man had run from the presence of God, had disobeyed the word of God, but when he lifted a prayer for salvation, guess what? God hears. We rest in that, don't we? Because we know that God is a God of mercy and of steadfast love and forgiveness for sinners. When Jonah turned in repentance to the Lord, he had assurance that his prayer and call for help would be heard by the Lord of heaven, who is a God of steadfast, loyal love. Are you out of fellowship with God today? There is good news here. There is good news. When we repent and turn from our sin, we will be met by a God of steadfast, loyal love who is quick to forgive. Praise His name. We don't deserve it, but in His mercy, He grants it. We can fall into the kind arms of a forgiving God Now that certainly is not an excuse to continue in sin, but it is a revelation of the nature of the God that we serve. How often have you come to Him for forgiveness? And how often has He time and time again given, granted that forgiveness? Jonah's deliverance now generates a closing finale of praise to God Certainly the ordeal has made this all really settle into his heart, but he is affected by what God has done. And here comes the grand finale. Perhaps a couple of nights ago you went to watch fireworks, and there's the tradition that somewhere at the end we can't pause and wait. We've got to fire up a whole bunch at once, and we call it the grand finale. That's where we are now here in this psalm. Now it's time for Jonah to stand up and say, Here was my ordeal. But I called out to God for forgiveness and grace, and He answered my cry. Now He stops to bring praise to the exclusive saving grace of God, where He says in verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. He speaks again. He speaks against those who revere or cling to false idols. The Hebrew word for idol is often translated vapor or breath, or nothingness. False gods are, as one has put it, empty nothings. They're not really there. They're not real. But the problem with worshiping false gods is not that you just waste your time. That you just put your affections on vanities, on things that aren't there, on nothingness. That's not the problem with idols. The problem with idols is not that we waste our time merely. The problem is that those who worship false gods sacrifice their access to God's steadfast love. 
We find the appeal to the idol, to that thing, that person, that idea, that goal, that plan that takes the place of God. We find the appeal in it and we run after it. Not thinking that by doing so we are turning our back on the only source of steadfast, loyal love in our lives. God alone is that source. To run from Him is to abandon the source. Jonah had run, but now he had willingly returned to the circle of fellowship with God. A return which encouraged thanksgiving and praise and sacrifice, verse 9. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We cannot be sure if this vow took place in the fish or before, but if the book is any indication, it may lay out what the vow was, that he would go back to Nineveh and proclaim the mercies of Christ there and call them to repentance. It's probable, then, that the rest of the book answers that question. But what is crucial here is that the helm of Jonah's life is once again in the hand of God. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and I want it. He doesn't want to run from the presence of the Lord anymore. He is saying, steer my life. I will do your will. I will fulfill my vows, and I will sacrifice to you. And so the psalm ends on this high note of exultant praise. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. I think this means at least three things. First, it is the character of God to save. We rejoice in a God who delights to save sinners. Praise Him. It secondly says that God alone is our Savior. Salvation belongs to God, verse 8. It does not belong to any idols. There's no other source but God alone. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And I think it thirdly says that God is sovereign in salvation, determining ultimately who will be saved. There is the response of the heart, certainly, that is willing and free and right on the part of the unbeliever, but ultimately it is God's sovereign decision. Salvation belongs to Him. It does not belong to us to contribute to our own salvation by our efforts. We must rest in the end in God's electing grace, though we may never understand it. Salvation belongs to Him. That is His character. It belongs to Him alone, exclusively. And it belongs to Him by authoritative right to give to whom he chooses as we reach for it and call for it. This truth is our glory. Do we understand that, Eden Baptist Church? This is our glory. This is our joy. This is what matters. We will never be more alive and never more filled with joy and wonder than when we tap the reality of this truth. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Do you sense it? The mercy of God, believer, is being poured down upon your head every day to provide forgiveness of sin, to provide the power of the indwelling Spirit of God. His mercy meets us every day in every situation. This is the kind of God that God is. This is our glory and our joy. When we get to heaven, this will be the theme of our song. Forever and ever we will proclaim the majesty of Christ. By the way, this is a sideline that wasn't in here at all, but I was talking to someone this week, speak of 
really not being too happy about going to heaven because all we're going to do is sing there and sing praises to God. Listen, we're going to do a lot of things there. It'll be a lot happier than here. We're going to work. We're going to play. We're going to also gather and sing. That's not all we do is sit around a throne forever and ever singing. That had nothing to do with anything. But if anybody's, that was just uh, an amazing thought to me that some think that, that we have to sit in a circle around Jesus and sing for eternity. That'd drive all of us crazy, I think, perhaps. But I think that there's much that will go on in heaven. But the theme, the heart of it, in our work, in our play, in our eating, in our worship, salvation belongs to the Lord, will be at the heart of it all. We will sing for joy to the Lord in our hearts while we do all of the activities that God gives us to do in eternity. This is what matters. Is it what matters to you? Does your work and your play Does your time in church and your time in private, does everything revolve around your knowledge that God is the Savior? We have no greater glory and joy in our God. Narrative 117. Poetry 2-1 and following. Now the other bookend. Chapter 2, verse 10, the narrative section again. Jonah is deposited on land. The Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Thankfully, the fish does not run from God's will, as Jonah did. And now Jonah will have a second opportunity to heed God's word. Chapter 3 and verse 1. It's irrelevant, really, where Jonah was deposited, but presumably somewhere on the Palestinian coast, and presumably quite relieved and willing to journey to Nineveh now. But wherever precisely he was deposited, guess where he's starting? Right back at the beginning. And there is, again, such a lesson for us when it comes to sin. When we walk off the trail of God's will, we're going to always have to come right back where we left the trail. We're going to have to reverse course. We've wasted our time. We've walked off into nothingness and folly and nothing that does any good. And we're going to have to come right back where we started with repenting and turning away from the way we've gone and getting back on the path. It's a clear picture for us here. He's put right back on the coast to go back and do what God had called him to do in the first place. We learn from this great poem and from these bookend narratives that salvation belongs to the Lord. And it leads us to question, has God saved you from sin? Has God shown Himself to be your Savior? The book of Jonah is not a cute little bedtime story. In fact, it probably create a few nightmares uh, depending on the age of the kids. It's possible. That's not what it's here for. It's not just meant to entertain us. Jonah is real history. It is connected to God's overarching plan of redemption through the ages. The brushstrokes with which God paints the story of Jonah are repeated in much bolder and more essential strokes as salvation history unfolds. We need to realize that we must read the Bible this way. We must read every text with what is going to come as well as in light of what has preceded. Said more pointedly, Jonah's brush with death has more to do with you than you may recognize. 
Now, we touched on this last week, and I'd like to land on it a bit longer here today in Matthew chapter 12 in the words of Jesus as we see this connection with Jonah and each of us. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 38. Matthew 12, 38. Jonah was sent by God to preach deliverance to the Ninevites. Jonah rebelled against that calling. But as Jesus Christ considers this narrative, he sees here a picture of his own ministry. Verse 38, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Over and over again, they wanted another miracle, another sign, another proof, another proof, another proof, never willing to submit their heart to who Christ is. But he answers them, he's not a performer, and he says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. You want a sign that Jesus is who he says that he is? You've just read it in the narrative of this book. This is a sign that will have as much effect in your life as if Jesus showed up right in front of you or took a car out in the parking lot and threw it into the river. If that wouldn't convince you that God is real, this won't convince you that God is true. But what Jesus is saying is look at the life of Jonah and you will find there a sign, an evidence of my authenticity and my messianic work. Jonah is sent by God to preach deliverance to the Ninevites. Jonah rebelled against that calling. Jesus was sent by the Father to save his people from their sins. And for the joy that was set before him, Jesus obeyed that call. The proof that Jesus was God's ultimate plan of redemption is that Jesus himself entered into the realm of death for three days and three nights. What God is doing as he brushes out this picture of Jonah and salvation is preparing the way for Jesus Christ and his ultimate salvation. So although the wages of sin is death, Jesus took this journey into the belly of Sheol, the realm of death, not because of his own sin, but because of our sins. And because Jesus paid the penalty of our sins such that all who believe are saved, His death is the very means by which our redemption is purchased. It was going into death that was necessary to defeat death. So Jesus died in the place of sinners, entering that realm of death for us, but death did not devour Jesus as its victim ultimately. He conquered it by rising from the grave. He was delivered from death for our justification. And now for those who trust in the work of Jesus, paying the penalty of our sin, death has lost its sting. Now, for we who are alive in Christ, to die is gain. It is our infinite advantage to die. Why? Because for those who are alive in Christ, to leave the body in death is to be at home with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5. And the sign that attests to this hope is an empty grave. It is Jesus' death, His burial, and His resurrection from the realm of the dead. This is the evidence that God has dealt with sin in Christ our Savior. You know, every one of us someday is going to enter into the realm of death. 
Two girls we just heard about this week, standing on the side of a river, and within moments, they were in eternity through an accident in that raging river. That alerts us to the fact that death can come at any moment, but some comes, sometimes it comes quickly, but it always comes. It will always come. Have you been saved from the eternal consequences of your sins? You will get dropped into the sea of death, barring Christ's return. You will. Once in that water of death, do you have confidence that your sins have been forgiven and that God has saved you from your sin? Jonah's deliverance will be nothing compared to yours and mine. Jonah's deliverance was a deliverance from physical death. But in Jesus Christ, we have deliverance from eternal death. From being separated from God forever and ever and ever. We have in Jesus the rescue from that destiny. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And when we think of falling into a raging sea, if you can really put yourself there, the fear can begin to well up within. To think of what trauma that would be. It is nothing compared to entering into eternity and being separated from God forever. Through no merit of our own, with no self-congratulatory emphasis, we gather here on the Lord's Day, week in and week out, to say we have been delivered from that future. From an eternity in death and separation from Christ. By the mercy of God alone. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Has God forgiven you your sins? Do you know you have a future with Him in eternity? Secondly, salvation belongs to the Lord. Are you rejoicing in your Savior? That's dealing not with the next life, but with this life. We see in Jonah's emphasis on the Psalms that he saw himself as part of the larger redemptive narrative of God's saving grace. Do you see that? In our Western world, there is a tendency for us to look at salvation in purely self-centered, individualistic terms. But as is evidenced by Jonah's psalm, he sees himself as part of God's grand redemptive scheme. And it is part of our joy to see ourselves as part of that scheme. To be part of the people of God through all of the generations who have come to know His steadfast love and saving grace. Do you see yourself that way? As I sing songs often on Sundays, I strive to picture the people in different places of this earth who are also praising God. And I strive to think of those who through the ages have stood for the Lord and been faithful to the end, who have given their life even for Christ. To picture myself with that early church and to know that I'm part of that stream. It's just not what spark I feel this day in me, but it's getting a sense that I am part of the saving work of God And as we come to sing as a church, we bear testimony to the angels of heaven that this salvation has visited us. 
And as we sing, it reflects upon our intimate knowledge of God as the living and active and sovereign God of steadfast, loyal love who is working to bring His people to saving faith and who is working to bring His erring children back to Him in repentance. This is the God we serve. This is the salvation that we have in Jesus. Is it possible, then, that I speak to someone whose heart is cold toward the worship of God? Perhaps you even enjoy music, but you say there's nothing inside that's really warm and motivated to celebrate the goodness and forgiveness and mercy of God. You're unaffected by the wonder of God's saving grace. There's one reason for that, among others that could possibly spin from it, but there's one reason that there's coldness when you consider what Christ has done. And that is idolatry. Your love and your affection is being placed on something else or someone else or some goal apart from your love for God. And that pleasure, that purpose, that person is taking the place of the loving, saving goodness of God. It needs to be put to death. Take a hammer and smash the thing to smithereens because it is keeping you from knowing the joy of the Lord. If our back is turned on the source of steadfast love, we will not know steadfast love. The idols must be removed. And our hope then as we come to consider the goodness of the Lord, is, that, is the, this assurance that nothing will separate us from God's love. Nothing. Now, God isn't particularly safe. Just ask Jonah. But His steadfast love toward His people will never fade away. Never. And His heart is that our hearts would come to find their rest in Him and find our soul's everlasting joy in Him such that we are always amazed by His grace. His grace is amazing. The problem is with the coldness of our own hearts to not sense it and see it. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This should be the banner over our lives. This should be the banner over our church. Salvation belongs to God and God alone. And at the end of your life, when you enter into eternity, that's all that's going to matter. That salvation belongs to the Lord and that you belong to him. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we give you thanks and praise for what you have done for us in Jesus and are absolutely convinced that we are only scratching the surface of this wonder. We are preparing ourselves, and I believe many can say with all of their heart, bring on heaven. We long for the day that we will enter into your presence and know the wonder of our salvation to its fullest. God, I pray that you would hasten that day, but in the meantime, that we would be doing here what you created us to do, to proclaim the wonders and the glories of your saving grace in Christ, 
to rejoice in community together as we praise your name. But then, Father, to proclaim this message widely as an outflow of our joy in you. God, for anyone that is separated from Christ today, I pray that you would bring them to see that Jesus died to pay the penalty of sin and that he rose from the dead in victory over death and sin. May we all know that salvation belongs to the Lord alone, but may we also know that we belong to you. Grant that assurance today and grant joy in our hearts as we contemplate that truth. Father, you alone are to be praised. We are sinners who do not deserve this grace, but you have given it to us at the ultimate cost. And for this we thank you and praise you that Jesus entered death for us and came out on the other side. We can go from here knowing that death is gain. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.